Last summer, we launched our Best of Trending in Ed series and got really amazing response to those episodes, so much so that we're bringing it back again. Today's episode is hearkening back to December of 2019, what I affectionately refer to as the before times. This is my conversation with Dr. Adam Gamwell, who's a design anthropologist and a podcaster who is continuing to do really interesting work. We'll include information about Adam in the show notes. I was pleasantly surprised to see that this episode about robots, science fiction, and the anthropological imagination is actually in our all-time top 10 most downloaded episodes. So good job by you if you have listened to it. Hopefully you'll enjoy hearing it again. It's actually a little bit ahead of the curve on some interesting trends and topics. Hopefully you'll enjoy. We'll be back with fresh episodes throughout the summer, but then sprinkling in these best ofs when it makes sense. Thanks, as always, for listening. Mike Palmer here for a special anthropological episode of Trending in Education. We're joined by Dr. Adam Gamwell, who is host of This Anthro Life. Adam's got a really wonderful cross-section of experiences that I think you can bring to bear. And in particular, we wanted to talk about robots, the future of work, anthropology, and science fiction. Quite a lot to cover. Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me. It's a great honor to be here. I love turning education, so it's fun to kind of have a cross-sectional episode, too, together. Absolutely. And then speaking of cross-sections and diverse interests... I wanted to begin by talking to you a little bit about yourself and what you do. The concept of design anthropology isn't necessarily something that everybody's uh, fully aware of, but I'd love you to maybe, in your own words, give us a quick summary of who you are and what you do professionally. Yeah, sure. So I, I do kind of an interesting mix of things I suppose are interesting to me. An anthropologist is somebody that studies the remarkable complexity of human cultures across time and space, which sounds fantastic anyway, doesn't it? But the idea of just like studying like the change over time of how cultures and languages shift, and that can be, you know, as people move from one state to another, or it can be across time. And it's like, you know, you may speak differently as a child than as an adult. And then of course, as you pass those down across generations, right? So studying trends and patterns of behavior and attitudes and beliefs. And then the design angle comes in because what to me is so interesting about design is it is about making sort of complex information understandable and simplified to people. Mm -hmm. So when you put these two things together, it's like, how do we better understand ourselves as humans? You know, why we change over time, why we use interfaces like we do on computers, why do we read signage the way we decide, like why is a stop sign red and, and a certain shape? And so all sorts of things, like our entire environment is designed in so many ways. And so this is, you know, this is kind of an intersection of putting these two pieces together, studying humans and change over time, as well as how we communicate who we are in that mm -hmm. sense. And then also I'm a podcaster, as you mentioned. And so to me too, that's just this other way of like, how do we communicate these like remarkable findings? You know, we're just a crazy species and yeah. there's so much to think about there, you know? And so, um, so I podcast, I also am a design educator. I teach design as well as in, in journalism programs in Boston, podcasting, education, anthropology. So just across all these things. We'd like to talk about multi-potentialites. Mm -hmm. I would uh, include you in that category, you know, someone who has a wide range of interests across multiple domains, really interesting intersections, you know, so you were talking about the stop sign and I was thinking about the intersection mm -hmm. right away. You got me there, but also design thinking is interesting and trying to, you know, help 
people think about their intentions when they design things and trying to understand who they're being designed for and wait for it, here it comes. And that brings me to the topic of robots because uh, robots have to be designed, right? They and, do. And then when they're designed, they're going to need to interact with humans in new and interesting ways. And I think that was what got us maybe on this path to getting you on the show was that we have a shared love of robots and talking about how robots make us think about what it means to be human. And then that got me and us thinking about how anthropology intersects with science fiction. And that's a lot right there. I mean, that's going to be a wonderful show. And that's the show, fortunately enough, that we're about to have together. So any thoughts on that? I don't know where you want to start. Do you want to start with robots? Do you want to, you know, there's plenty of rage. You're an experienced podcaster. I'll pick up what you're putting down. Where do you want to go next? What really was interesting to me about this entire intersection is this idea that if people don't really know what anthropology is, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but point out that anthropology is a social science, which means that we, you know, we study with and amongst humans in this case, and the, the social systems of people. And we also, the science side of that, I'm putting in air quotes, you probably can't see this if you're listening to it. The science side of this is that we, of course, use evidence, right? We like do what we might call a test. You know, it's not a repeatable, you know, hypothesis experiment, but we are going to say, we think people act a certain way in this environment or just go out and see how do people act at this stop sign at the intersection. So we collect data by talking with people, by observing them. And so then we can derive theories of why people do what they do from that. What's mm -hmm. super interesting about that with science fiction, of course, now fiction is fiction. It's made up, right? Right. However, the science side of both those is really interesting because science, like sci-fi, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, big Star Wars nerd. I'm going to put that out there. I do yeah. that Star Trek too, but in, but I'm a Doctor Who, a Whovian, I guess, I guess we're called. Nice. In a Star, Star Warsian, I guess. <laughs> you know, and so that, that's kind of my entree into these fields where like both of these shows in Star Trek too, and like any, your favorite thing, The Matrix, Ex Machina, The Terminator, all of these kind of sci-fi films raise these really interesting questions about what it means to be human. And so like, for me as an anthropologist, it's like, what kind of patterns of behavior do we observe? Like, what do these films tell us about what we think about what it means to be human, right? right. And then robots in real life give us this moment of saying, wait, okay, we're actually making this stuff now. Yes. We're making these pieces. We're, we're trying to like make some of the sci-fi real. Right. And then at the same time, we're just going in ways that sci-fi doesn't go, right? And I think that's really fascinating too. Like there's these different kinds of pieces that we can you know, put together here. And yeah. for me, I don't know, like sci-fi always was so interesting because it's, you know, this genre of writing and now, you know, film and audio and podcast and stuff. And that really helps us speculate on, you know, what the future could be, you know, what might yes. it be like if robots take over? What might it be like if this thing happens? Or there's other ways of thinking about, you know, if an idea mutates, like if aliens came down and like, how would we deal with that? You know? And so right. I love like the breadth that sci-fi lets us really kind of think about what it could be you know, what life could be like or would be like if something radically was different. But it's really interesting to think about how a lot of future thinking, because that's a big part of what we wind up doing on this show, is tied to thought experiments and allegories. And frequently when you're thinking about a hypothetical future, that's a bit of a thought experiment. And that's the type of thing that, you know, philosophers, ethicists spend a lot of time in. And it was interesting as I did research for this show to see that the whole concept of anticipatory anthropology hmm. and what was the other term? It was a good one. Speculative anthro. A speculative anthropology, anthropological science fiction. There's an entry in Wikipedia for that. Hmm. And then also cyborg anthropology, which we're going to have to save some of that for later. So, you know, in addition to philosophy as an area that is very interested in the future and hypothetical scenarios, 
I did think the allegorical nature of science fiction as it relates to engaging with the other and engage mm. with different cultures, you know, whether it's aliens or robots, something that is not as inherently human as we are, you know, in some ways, I think that harkens back to the earlier days of cultural anthropology, you know, Margaret Mead in the South Pacific and mm -hmm. other sorts of investigations like that, which also made me think about Star Trek, even though I know you're a Star Warsian, you're fluent <laughs> in things Star Trek, but there was the notion of the prime directive. That's right, yeah. And as the Enterprise went out there, there was almost an ethnographic orientation towards the different cultures that would be encountered. Yeah, totally. That's actually a great way to think about it. In anthropology, the kind of study of different groups of people with the intention of understanding it in their own logic, in their own words, in their own ways, rather than us coming and saying, hey, this is how we see you. It's more like, how do you see yourselves? Is the ultimate goal, how well Star Trek or anthropologists do that is, is always, you know, up for question, which is important sure. to always kind of be critical of our own practices. But I think that that's totally right. And I, I think that idea is so interesting too. And like, even, you know, and as you mentioned, Margaret Mead and, and Franz Boas, some of the, the yes. progenitors of anthropology in the early 20th century, you know, yeah, their ideas were to go study other cultures, you know, that were not, you know, Western European or American cultures, partially in a way to then say, we actually do want to say that these other cultures are valuable in the contemporary society and that they have a place. And again, this was fighting against a lot of racism and colonialism, saying like these people are not worthwhile because they're not the like, you know, supreme Western, you know, European or, or Americans. And it's so interesting too, because that is tied to this notion you said of the other, right? And the idea of like going to see what the other is and this, you know, you know, again, in, in a like bad sense, in a racist sense, a colonial sense, the less than human. But again, yes. that allegorical idea does totally come in in the sci-fi world, right? Aliens right. are the ultimate other, right? They're the not human. Right. I mean, the fact that we have the term alien for migrants across the planet tells you something very interesting, right? Right. Anthropologically and also kind of sci-fi E2. It's like as if they like, you know, beam down on a mothership yes. <laughs> to a different part of the planet, you know? Right. It's weird. But sci-fi is so interesting because of that. It's like it deals with that otherness, right? And so right. Like, that's such a good doorway to, to ask ourselves, like, so why are we obsessed with the other? We are fascinated by that which we don't totally understand. And we're both horrified and really drawn to it, you know? That's why yeah. robots are so interesting, you know, because it's like robots are not humans. You know, we're trying to make them human. We can talk about and like anthropomorphizing yeah. them, making them look like people. Yeah. But we're like totally drawn into this otherness, right? Right. And then that got me to this notion of anticipatory or speculative anthropology and the idea that as I looked a little bit, there are folks, anthropologists who have said one of the problems in the field is that it winds up being too backwards facing. So like mm. look at the historical precedents that lead to what currently exists and for that to be the entirety of the spheres within which anthropologists operate is somewhat limiting and it's not necessarily trying to anticipate or speculate on where we're heading as humans. I'd love to get your perspective on that, even in your own practice, you know, in some ways, maybe the design thinking is helping you be at least a little more anticipatory when you're putting something out in the world, you're expecting it to be engaged with in a more practical way. But any thoughts on the more speculative, how do you look, say, five to 10 years out in the future as an anthropologist? And how does that come to bear on anything we might be interested on this show? Yeah, totally. It's funny because like anthropology has a PR problem, right? That we like, you hear it like, oh yeah, you study ancient peoples. And it's like, yes. well, some of us do. Sure. Right, right. So it's like that, it's not incorrect, but you're right. It's like, we're not really known for being forward thinking or like, 
and part of it too is again because like as a as one level of science, you know, and the way that anthropologists are trained is to, again, through observation, through interviews, through living with people, you gather evidence about what patterns of behavior people do, get a sense of why they do what they do in people's own cultural logic. And so then it, it's what we might call diagnostic, right? It's like understanding or diagnosing a current situation, right? But then you're totally right. There's this anticipatory movement or like, how do we predict what might happen next? And anthropology is totally in a great spot to do that, you know? And I think, right. and that's also, again, for me, like as a design anthropologist, as a design thinker, this is one great way of doing that because one of the main differences is like traditional anthropology would go out and study a, a different group of people in a different culture or even in, in their own culture. And then, you know, come back and write a book about it, writes, you know, kind of make information available to a different group about this other group. Yes. Now what design does also is it actually works to actively intervene in a current situation, right? Help mm -hmm. improve the future. Right. And so on one level, it is inherently predictive. It's also interventionist. I think it is an important piece too, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, do we, you know, how do we sort of ethically find a way to intervene in people's lives? And part of that, I think the anthropology part is important because what it does is let us understand alongside with you. Let us talk with you. Let us get to know your, you know, what you're going through. And then we can help diagnose an issue together to then solve for something for the future, right? right. And so right. part of being anticipatory is like, there's an anthropologist named Tim Ingle that talks about having foresight, what he calls. It. And the idea with this is to be anticipatory is to kind of go out and run ahead of events and pull them along in the timeline to where you mm -hmm. want them to go, which I think mm -hmm. is a really beautiful like, kind of allegory, you know? you know? And so it's just kind of like being attentive to what are people's goals. Instead of just saying where you come from, it's kind of saying, well, where do you want to go? Right. You know, what do you see happening in five to 10 years? And like the more time you spend with people, you know, you can ask more questions about their anticipations of what they're looking for. And you can see, I mean, you know, contemporary, we're in 2019 United States, there's a lot of anxiety over political challenges. There's global challenges happening in multiple countries. There's issues of climate. You know, it's not hard to see how people are thinking about the future in these very broad strokes. And so then grab some of those and then kind of run ahead with people and say, where do you think we're going with those? Yeah. You know, in design sense, then it's like, how do we pull that to a practical level of saying, okay, well, what steps can we take to right. help make some change possible, right? Right, right. To that end, let's talk robots, right? So <laughs> yeah. if we're looking ahead, let's say the next five to 10 years, pretty much anyone who's doing that is thinking about automation, is thinking mm -hmm. about skills and domains that are going to be disrupted by what's been called the fourth industrial revolution or the fourth wave industrial revolution, which is really fully leveraging some of the emerging capabilities around artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robots. I'd love to get your perspective on that as an anthropologist, as a design anthropologist, and someone who thinks about the future. I also think it's an interesting time to think about how much of this is really allegorical, is more like a secular myth, which is something we were talking about coming in, particularly, you know, post-enlightenment, you know, scientific revolution, you know, in some ways the gods are less part of our secular narrative, but there are still places where we want to sort of grapple with what might be superhuman or sort of beyond our current conceptions of what's possible. And I think that's frequently where we sort of, we use these constructs like robots and aliens to sort of both identify the other, but identify something that might be godlike or beyond us, which also starts to get us into the cyborg side. So thoughts on this? Cyborg is actually a really good way to start thinking about this. The idea of cyborg anthropology and cyborgs themselves, right? A cyborg is a being that has both organic and non-organic components. Mm -hmm. And so it's like cyborg anthropology almost is kind of a joke, if you think about it, because it means I have a cell phone. It just gets a way of thinking about you know, there's actually Ember Case that does a really wonderful TED talk about cyborg anthropology. And then 
she kind of points out saying, I want to show you a picture of a cyborg just to get this warmed up. And she turns the slide on and there's a picture of a baby holding a cell phone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's like this funny idea that like, oh, that that's when it comes down to it, that's what really what we're talking about. Like the mm -hmm. idea of how do we sort of interface with non-organic components and mm -hmm. certainly with electronic ones like this. And so on, on one level, like all of us are cyborgs now, right? We have all become cyborgized, whatever sure. verb is. Yeah. You know, we are cyborgian. You know, and it's just this idea, like Donna Harway, the anthropologist, talks about this of us being messmates. And like the idea is like we're just like this messy middle where it's like we we interact with these organic and non-organic devices all the time. And that we live our lives, we make our meaning using them, right? We have Twitter right. and we have our cell phones and we're talking on a podcast right now across right. time and space. Right. You know. And so given that, like on one level, like we are super used to like working with this kind of level of technology, right? So on one, right. one level, like we can't actually not be cyborgs, right? Like we have to relearn how to be humans without right. having this technology. And so it's interesting is that robots add this extra layer of anxiety and excitement, right? And I think godlike powers is an interesting way of thinking about that. Like the number one easy way to think about a god power is you don't have to sleep, right? right. We tend to think about God as like, you know, certainly in, in the United States and Western Europe and stuff that... God in, is like the dominant religion is monotheism. Maybe atheism mm -hmm. is taking over, but you right. know, by and large is that there's like one single like mega God, right. <laughs> you know? Right. But if you go to Dragon Ball Z or you go to any other places, like there's like a pantheon, like even the, the ancient Greek gods. And this is what the historian Yuval Noah Harari talks about in Homo Deus. Yes. I mean, also he wrote the book Sapiens, which, you know, it's a really cool like trilogy of books about where humans came from, where we're going, where we might be today. And in this book, he talks about like the human quest for immortality and for happiness and for just making ourselves have godlike powers. But what really struck me about this when he's setting this up is that it isn't that we want to become this omnipotent, you know, monotheistic god. It's that we're actually taking on powers like what we might see with the South Asian or Hindu gods or Greek gods that we can travel really fast or we can see really far away or we like yeah. have something like third sight, you know. So it's not this everything, but it's like we're getting these like upgrades, you know. Right. And that right. you play any video game it's like an rpg right you can like level up your xp yes you can add things to your stuff you know right it's kind of like that so it's, it's an interesting amalgamation where it's not just this like block of like we become god right but it's like this really interesting mix like again and us a cyborg is like you can get a better cell phone all right leveled up you know my computer's fast yeah, right. i leveled up you know right right um, really interesting mix yeah. And the one we've talked about, particularly as it relates to cyborgs, is brain-computer interfaces. Science fiction is super interesting in terms of the narrative elements and the myth-making. Myths and the stories that cultures tell their members is a big part of anthropology. And thinking about how the stories we tell and the stories we're told about robots are frequently tied to media experiences and yeah. you know we talked about westworld a bunch when it was out there partly because i think it captures our imagination just in general like the narrative itself and then partly because exploring those possible futures that may not be too far off frequently can help us understand how do we want to get to those next phases so like you're i like the way you were talking about being somewhat interventionist you know flouting the prime directive to say yeah. based on the possible future that i see on the horizon i need to introduce things that might steer us in a different way i'd love to get your take on those concepts and touch a bit on the uncanny valley too because like that was another thing that we've both covered a few times on our independent shows and I'm trying to figure out, as we talk about the intersection, you know, there's a stop sign there, but there's also some discussion of the uncanny valley. 
So just past the stop sign. Yeah, just past the stop sign is the exactly stop. The RB dragons, <laughs> the RB cyborgs, <laughs> and, uh, you, and you may want to you may want to pause before proceeding. But do you, could you maybe spend a few moments talking about what the Uncanny Valley is, as you understand it, and how it might relate to these narratives and how we think about what it means to be human? Yeah, definitely. Because the Uncanny Valley is really interesting, right? It's this, it's, if we like visualize, a, a, you know, a, a curve, like kind of like a, a pyramid, if we're looking at like a line graph and, you know, it kind of starts bottom in like on the very left side of this graph is like things that don't seem very human in this case, right? And then the Uncanny Valley is when you kind of go up and up and up and like robots look more and more human until you reach this point where it's not cool anymore because they look so much like you. It just feels like, uncanny. It's like, this is uncomfortable because I can't distinguish myself or like what the human is from the robot. And then it kind of dips into super creepy. And so like, this is where it's like, we might talk about if you've seen Dr. Who, that's okay. But there's like a Dalek. It looks like, it looks like a small tank on wheels. Like it looks yeah. nothing like a human. It looks right. like a stupid, like gumball with wheels. <laughs> you know, that is not anywhere near the uncanny. Like that's on like the far, far side of like, looks like a robot, you know, and that's right. safely in robot territory. And, right. you know, a lot of old school robots that we conceptualize these big metal things, you know, are on that yeah. side, you know, but as we get closer, we move into C-3PO and then you talked about Data before too from Star Trek, who's mm -hmm. actually just an actor, right? you know, painted with slightly gold skin. Yeah. Up until like you might see, if you saw Ex Machina that came out yes. a few years ago yes. with Alicia Vanderkenner was this robot that was just she's a human, you know, but happens to also be a robot, you know, you can just tell because she doesn't have half of a head, you know, yeah. the other half is like clear. Yeah. You know, and so it's like getting to the space where you can't tell the difference between, you know, a human and a robot and, you know, Part of this is interesting too, because this has to do with what's called the Turing test, which is like, can yep. a computer trick you into thinking it's a person? So there's these two pieces, does it look like a human? Mm -hmm. And then also can it trick you into thinking it's a human, which both are kind of scary, you know, yeah. ideas. Yeah. And that's where things like the human computer interface, like are way past the uncanny valley, because you can't even see the interface. It just is in you, yes. you know, and then yeah. am I me? Am I the interface? I don't know. Right. So it goes from like, you know, tank robot all the way to you are the computer. Right. Uh, and then so and that's it's a really interesting because it gets it blends really quickly once you get over that the hump of the valley when you're in there. Yeah. Yeah. Am I the robot? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. If you are, you're passing the, the Turing <laughs> test right now. And <laughs> right. somebody somebody did some significant programming on the other end. So hats off to them or not. But I think all of that is hugely interesting to me in terms of how that coincides with the crisis of trust. Yeah. that we're all facing nowadays where we're not clear what what is true and we're not clear on you know who am i actually engaging with at this point in time and there's all this blurring of engaging with humans and engaging with smart agents who are human like i always think about chat bots in yeah. that context and then frequently the chat bot handles the initial interaction and then if they need to bubble that up to sort of a human because of an escalation of some kind, increasingly, I think the design thinking is creating a system where the machines do the things that machines do best to preserve some space for the humans to do what humans do best. And interestingly, I think the human, particularly when humans engage with other humans, building trust, empathy, and a sense of a shared shared experience or shared meaning mm -hmm. are the places that, you know, the Turing test would argue that the robots will have trouble crossing that divide. Like that's the yeah. valley, the valley beyond for those of us who are Westworld fans. But I think that is, that that's very much, I think, a, again, like an allegory for 
one of the most sort of fundamental existential crises that I think we're facing right now. And that all circles back to the concept of the singularity, mm. which Ray Kurzweil put out there, like the futurist was putting out some of these ideas, but he was talking about how humans and machines would be combined in what was then the distant future, what is now in the next, say, five to 10 years, that this idea that there is something distinctly human that is independent from the mm. cell phone, the baby's holding that you were describing before, <laughs> that blending is likely to happen and it's happening already. And it's also happening at a time when we're not necessarily trusting technology. I think it's hugely interesting. Clearly we could go on at length about this. It's been wonderful having you on, but yeah, I'd love to get your perspective on that. And then we'll probably try to wrap with any thoughts on how this might relate to learning education writ large or teaching. Cause that is, you know, what the thrust of this show is about, but any thoughts on that, the crisis of trust and, you know, the level to which we're sort of approaching this singularity moment when these sort of blends between humans and AI are going to become more standard. And then I think that does relate in part to the Turing test. The Turing test, I think in some ways was saying, Turing was speculating that it'd be difficult to create these sort of blends, but that was back in the 1950s, you know, yeah. we're almost 70 years beyond when he was speculating about this stuff. You know, it seems like when it comes to chat, from what I've read, designers are already passing the Turing test. Any thoughts on that? Well, that's, I mean, I think that's a great, that chatbots are a really interesting question. And I think about the idea of trust with AI and robots, because they're an example of people using text to deceive. A chatbot helping you on a website is not deceiving you, but a chatbot in a text bot used on Twitter to sow false information is used to deceive. And so yes. I think part of the reason that we have this like challenge of trust is because people are used, people, not robots, are using the technology to do different things, right? Some is like, let me help you, like, instead of looking at an FAQ list, just talk to the robot. Right. Or let me put a bunch of bullshit, sorry, put a bunch of bad stuff on Twitter that's going to, you know, incite, you know, political anger. Yeah. And so given that, like, the trust, it's interesting, the trust, we tend not to trust the technology, but it's actually the people behind it, which as an anthropologist, again, like it's this, again, who's doing it is one of the questions. So there always is a question of power. I have to just put a plug in there for power. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, literally you have to plug in the power, but also just like there's power <laughs> dynamics of who's controlling the information, right? Yeah. And so as we get to the singularity, like I think part of the fear, same with like automation and loss of jobs, um, to jump over to that for a second, is yeah. that again, that's not being done because it's necessarily good for people. It's being done because it's good for a business, right? Right. And while it does help turn out, we'll say more cars or it can help, I don't know, I mean, doing an AI color palette can help you pick the color palette for your website faster than a human could potentially, you know? Right. There are these things that it can do like quicker. But again, what is that good for? You know, right. is it really on one level necessary to make color palettes faster? Maybe, maybe right. not. Right, right. And sort of make cars faster? Maybe, maybe not. So the crisis of trust, it's interesting because like it gets placed on robots sometimes and it, it certainly can be because why would you trust a, an algorithm? Right. We also literally can't ever see. And the people that made it also can't see them. But different topic for a different episode. Right, that's, this is this, <laughs> the, the, the vague paranoia or specific paranoia phase yeah. of the show. See, exactly, right. But then the other side of it too is that like, you know, who's making these decisions and why? And that's why like, you know, Byron Reese just came out with a book called The Fourth Age. It is about this idea of like the fourth industrial revolution, you know, moving this turn into, in that we're going to more automation and stuff. And again, 
it is advancing industry, but it's, you know, it is causing an existential crisis for a lot of people to the extent that, you know, all of us have to rethink what education means, right? Do I need to keep going back to school? You right. know, do I need to keep learning new things? And the answer so far I'm seeing is, yeah, yeah. you know, like l- lifelong learning is now used to be a cool thing. And now it's like a requirement, right. um, which is both cool, but also just like, but again, what is the education for? And again, like it's kind of shifts to this idea of like, if I am an auto factory worker that gets booted out because robots took over my job, then I'm going to do a vocational training program. I'm probably not going to get a degree in philosophy. Maybe. Right. Right. You know? So I think one of the things that we definitely want to be thinking about for education going forward is you know, I obviously want to advocate for having space for humanities and social sciences on top of my working with STEM in yeah. science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, but then like, you know, not reduce education to vocation only. However, I think it's also important to like help traditional universities that do STEM and humanities to also have vocational training. So it's like, we really could learn to rethink all these pieces together as we move into more automation, as we want to robot proof ourselves, because things like humanities and social sciences and anthropology, sociology do kind of, as you said, point out some of the key things that humans do that robots don't do, right? Right. right. That we relate to each other really well. We make meaning well together. We make really cool narratives. You know, we know how to bond and, you know, yeah, you can be friends with the robot too, but there's certain things that, that at least for now, right, are uniquely human and those ought to be both celebrated and in the age of automation, not diminished, I guess. And that, that I think that is actually part of the work of education today, right? Mm -hmm. Something we can design into our curriculum is like, we have to find ways to both celebrate and teach I guess as weird as it sounds, like what it means to be human, yeah. right? And like, and then it's okay. And then it's also valuable to society. Right. It's not just, you know, can I go be a UX designer and make a hundred grand? Or can I go be a podcaster and, you know, become a gajillionaire like we all are? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just more like we, we actually need to like, on one level, come back to the basics of like, this is what it means to be a good human. Right. You know, like the prime directive, right? <laughs> do no harm. Yeah. And do well and like study and understand other people on their own terms. You know, yeah. it's like, Maybe Star Trek was right. Yeah. And Immanuel Kant and the Buddha and, and others. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was onto some things too. You know what I mean? Like they have, ideas, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, all that stuff. But yeah, it's really interesting. And maybe just to conclude, like you were talking a bit about, I think you were saying like future proofing, you're thinking about your own career prospects and then also how we think about education. I'd love to, to get your perspective on that as we look at domains that are getting disrupted by automation and by robots and by many of the things we talked about on the show today. How do you think about the things that it makes sense to invest in, even in terms of your own lifelong learning? To use you as an example, you're a trained anthropologist, you know, you teach at universities, but you've also ramped up on the creative side and you operate a production studio, among other things. I'd love to end maybe on a little bit more of a personal note in terms of how you think about the future and how you think about, at least on a personal level, how you'll stay future-proof and relevant, but maybe trying to extrapolate that to any lessons or recommendations you might want to provide to our listeners around, you know, how to really lean into the lifelong learning side of Mm -hmm. maybe the next five to 10 years. Yeah. This is an adage that I have heard from creatives. In that if you're looking for a job in user experience design and you look at like a bunch of, you know, descriptions of jobs and what they're looking for, it's really funny because all of them say, we want someone that's curious. And that is a very simple idea. But however, that's occurred to me again, like, I guess both as an anthropologist and someone that's read a bunch of job apps over the years is that, well, that if they're saying that, that means they're not seeing it. And they also realize there's a value in that. And so I guess part of my thing is then to say, yes, like, I think, for myself too, it's like, like, I think that was like a subtle way of me realizing that being curious is okay and important, right? That like, 
being interested in a lot of things is helpful. Like not that one has to be in order to be successful, but you know, if you're interested in something, if you're interested in music or interior design or I don't know, stop sign design, yeah. you know, or ice cream flavors, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's like, it is, is like not being afraid to kind of follow your nose a little bit and say, I want to go a little bit down this rabbit hole and see what it is. Right. You know, and oftentimes when you meet some level of resistance is usually when you can then understand, do I want to pursue or not? You know, and oftentimes it's worth dealing with some of that resistance. Right. Yeah. I was told when I first started podcasting that it wasn't really worth my time. I guess the verdict is still out, but <laughs> six years later, I love doing it. You know, yeah. And, you know, here we are. So, you know, it's like, I think part of it too is like, yeah, I mean, follow your nose. That's kind of what I've been doing. And that's where it's like, you know, began anthropology. Then I started doing podcasting as a way to, for me, bring anthropological thinking to different audiences. And also I'm a really slow reader and being a student is very frustrating. You have to read all the time. How right. do I get information easier to myself? Why don't I listen to it? Right, right. You know, and so, I mean, that was part of it was, again, like I saw one of my own problems. How do I help solve that? Right. How do I help improve my future condition by doing something about it? And that was, I guess I designed thought my own podcast back in the day. I didn't realize that. Wow. Nice. It's like therapy, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and as I guess, I guess part of that, and then just like, what's interesting today is, you know, as I kind of joked before, when he started, I'm a freelancer for life. And part of it, I think is like, what's incredible about today is that you can make a living doing most anything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you have to put hard work into it, but like, because we have the internet, because we have access to so much technology and communication technology and logistics, like if you need to get something shipped to you, you can do that. Yeah. You have access to MOOCs, online education, right? Right. Like you can kind of pursue most anything, you know, this is of course in the utopian world in which we don't have cultural constraints and parents saying get a real job. Right. But uh, you know, I don't know. So it's a mix of these two things, I guess, but like part of it, I guess I stuck with it long enough. Right. My parents stopped asking what I was going to do with my life because it started looking like I was doing something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. So I guess it's a mix of those things, I guess. But like, yeah. you know, I think for me, it just, it's like, just stay curious, you know? And like, it is, it's worth the fight to keep trying, like follow what you care about. Right. And I don't mean that in some, you know, some hippy dippy sense, but just like, you can actually make a living doing it. If you actually, you know, take the time to figure out what the industry looks like, what the space looks like, what people are, what problems do they face, right? Be yeah. the anthropologist, you know? Right, right. A little bit. Maybe think the jury's out on whether I like the terms, but I like the idea of the distinction between the gig economy and the passion economy, mm. which I've seen a little more lately, which is like Interesting. Yeah. pursue spaces where you can derive meaning and value in your life and then sort of find the way to generate income out of that. I think it's an interesting macro lesson. It can become challenging, you know, rather than pursuing the extrinsic rewards, which generally might include, you know, income. But if you sort of pursue more like where you find passion and meaning in your lives, and then you're ready to be flexible and entrepreneurial in that sort of endeavor, there are plenty of ways to stay relevant. I think increasingly they're going to involve making things and they're going to involve yeah. being creative. And I, maybe just the last piece to bring you in on too is like, can you talk a little bit about the production studio side of what you do? Because I think that is interesting. Not every anthropologist is also doing the production stuff that you do. So I'd love to maybe close with that just to kind of open up how people think about the quote unquote passion economy. That's a great question. Uh, yes, yeah, so I run a production company called Missing Link Studios here in Boston. And actually my business partner lives in Texas. So we're, we're a distributed team. But again, she and I are both passionate about making things, right? And so part of it, and she's also a trained anthropologist, but she's worked in data science for years and, and you know, also trained anthropologists, but work on the design side. And so we kind of found a space in the middle where data and design come together. And that is the magic word of storytelling. 
And, yeah. you know, again, speaking of things that humans do well, it's one of the things that we have fundamentally always done, right? We talked about myths and narratives across robots and education and you know, the future. And like, that's what we do. We tell stories as people, right, you know? Right. And so Missing Link Studios is just this space in which we can both do things like visual design or data design, but also help people tell stories. Part of it is just like, what does it mean to give people the space for unfettered creativity, right? And how do we help you? I want to tell the story either visually or I don't know what I want to do. I have this thing I want to tell. I either want to get my brand up to date or I just want to make this podcast about XYZ. Right. You know, part of it is like, how do we design think that problem? Opening up the creative palette of like audio and visual and mm. data. You know, we have so many, like we have, our palette is full, right? Of these different kinds of mediums we could use. And so making is what it's about. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like we're at the point now where since we have so many tools, like you and I, we can podcast and like, you know, we're using distributed tools to do this also. And so it's yeah. like that people have access to these, like it means we can, we should make, right? And people love making stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, let's just, let's put some guardrails in the bowling alley to make it sound good and look good. Yeah. That's what our training is for. And then, uh, yeah, that's the dream, I guess. Awesome. Dr. Adam Gamwell, thanks for joining us. We made something. We made a podcast. We did. We made a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So thanks again to Adam. Look forward to staying in touch. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. Awesome. And to our listeners, thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon.